Welcome to Her Skin, a podcast about the minority experience. I'm Abby Chinaya. A year ago, I started a photography series called Light Skin, Dark Skin, following the stories of brown women and their experiences with colorism. Now I'm taking things a step further. I'm having discussions about diversity, skin color, race, inclusivity, and everything in between. So today joining me on Her Skin is Jasmine Singh, facilitator and organizer at Migrant Zine Collective. Welcome to Her Skin. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Thank you for coming out on a rainy Saturday. Well, not quite raining at the moment. but yeah. um, So I wanted to get you in to talk about Migrant Zine Collective and what it's about. Yeah. We met when I got in touch with you guys yeah. about my exhibition, Light Skin, Dark Skin. Yes. And I think Helen was the one who responded to me first. Yeah, so she responded, um, but I think she felt like I was probably better placed as a South Asian woman um, Mm -hmm. and someone that had more of that experience of, like, colorism and stuff in my own life um, to actually work with you as opposed to her as an East Asian woman. Um, But, yeah, um, after she kind of established contact, I was the one that was responding to you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's been so awesome working with you guys. So when did Migrant Zine Collective start? So it's been three years now, which means around 2017. I think I was around the end of 2017. Um, So I was making zines sort of before that, um, mostly through um, the club at uni, Feminists of Color. Um, And yeah, I like enjoyed it. I'm not a very artsy person in general, but it just kind of felt like it was no pressure, very like DIY, doesn't matter if it's ugly kind of of stuff. So I got into it through there and then we both, um, Helen and I actually met through um, volunteering at Shop the Youth. Ah, okay. Yeah, so we kind of became friends through that. um, And then she brought up that she had this idea for a zine collective. and would I want to be involved and we work well together as well so I was quite keen to kind of get involved in that and do something like creative aside from my other kind of study and like political stuff that I was doing um so this seemed like a really fun way to engage in activism and also be like meeting people in the community getting their thoughts about like you know, what the migrant experience is, how they've experienced racism um, in different ways. And yeah, I think that's a good lowdown of everything. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. So how did you get in touch, um, well, get involved with Shakti Youth? Um, I actually wanted to be a volunteer. So part of it was like, I need some more like experience on my CV. But part of it was also like, I was studying this degree, um, criminology, um, in undergrad, and then planning on doing it in um, postgrad as well. But I just felt like all I was doing was reading theory (laughs) and not applying anything or talking to anyone. Um, And I know at undergrad level, there is not really much that you can do in terms of like, you know, researching and speaking to people and that kind of stuff. Um, but I just kind of wanted to be involved in this and I love working with youth as well mm-hmm. um, so it kind of seemed like a good idea at the time as well um, the only kind of little hitch in the plan was I only discovered that this is really what I wanted to do a lot later on yeah um, so I, I actually started volunteering my honors year which if anyone's done honors it's very very stressful yeah um, 
on top of working as well so I was volunteering Uh, but I really enjoyed it like it was it's not something that I regret kind of looking back it was yeah it was just really fun talking to the youth they're all like super smart and like just funny and great so yeah didn't didn't like regret it at one bit (laughs) did you find that it gave you a sense of fulfillment which is why you wanted to do it yeah, definitely. So um, most of the Shakti youth stuff um, that we were doing at that point was um, working with students. So we do like school visits, have a chat with them about, you know, the stuff that was going on in their lives, talk about feminism, racism. Since Shakti was also a domestic violence-based organization, we would talk about like mental health and like violence in our communities and stuff like that. But it was all meant to be within this kind of open space where um, there was no real like full restrictions on you know what was being said there what they could talk about aside from like not being discriminatory obviously Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's just I think it's it's something that I would have really valued in school as well even though I went to school in Malaysia Mm -hmm. um just having that space where you know someone could tell me like this is you know the rest of the world and this is the life that you lead at home in terms of your culture like the clash of kind of two worlds yeah um yeah so I thought that was quite that was that was what made me feel most fulfilled and like seeing all these young feminists super engaged and like wanting to like hold events and they've they'd done like two youth marches for youth week um while we were there and they'd done like these incredible speeches and stuff so it was yeah it was super super fulfilling to just be there and like talk to these people these young people that had all these like I wish I was like them, to be honest. I was like, oh my god, I wish I was like you guys. I feel like you school. are, because you yeah. do so much with the Migrant Zine Collective. And I like yeah. how you talked about, I guess, unrestricted speech, right, yeah. when it comes to the migrant story. Yeah. And that's what you've put into the Migrant Zine Collective in the form yeah. of art. Yeah, That's what attracted me to you guys to yeah. begin with. I didn't know what a zine was. Yeah. <laughs> And I think you mentioned it was a way for migrants to get their story out creatively. Yeah, so zine itself is uh, just a word that's used for like the mini self-published magazines that we make. They're usually about A5 size, but I mean, if you've ever been to a zine fest or seen any zines online, they can range from like... um, like little eight page zines that are made out of like one sheet of A4 paper to like, you know, people cut the paper to make different sizes. Um, And they're on like a whole variety of topics. For us, it was really important to kind of go back to the roots of zine making um, and activism. Mm -hmm. So zines as a form of kind of publishing and like um, making art came out of um, a lot of the social movements in the 60s and 70s. Um, and they were a way for um, activists to actually share their ideas um, with the community when they couldn't do that in kind of mainstream platforms. Mm-hmm. So it's a very kind of radical, um, radical kind of uh, like art practice, art practice, activism practice, and um, yeah, just more about community and like coming together and talking about you know what's been happening yeah. among us and for migrants particularly. I, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but there's always kind of that um, mainstream narrative of like, we are forever grateful. And like, you know, if we're talking about racism, it's like, you know, I love New Zealand, but this racism exists. Like, I don't think we should have to qualify that I love this country or like, you know, I've lived here for so and so long um, to 
kind of make it clear that like I'm angry that I've had a racist experience mm-hmm. or anything like that. So I think part of our drive behind um, going around, um, going around, you know, around that mainstream narrative was to like challenge the whole idea of like the forever grateful migrant. <laughs> yeah. And also, I like how you mentioned that these messages are not shared in the mainstream. Yeah. Would you say it's very whitewashed? Yeah, it's very whitewashed. It's very softened um, as well. I think a lot of the mainstream kind of narratives for migrants, again, like they tend to be very... What are, I think the term that I... A term that I saw yesterday on Instagram... Um, in relation to like decolonial work was that it gets softened for white people's feelings Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so that they don't feel like they have to be defensive or be like why don't you just kind of like just sort your own shit out or whatever Mm -hmm. that's what i feel like the mainstream narrative kind of ends up being or it wants to be this like really hopeful story of these like you know migrants that came to this country and didn't know anything and didn't have anything and then look at them now what New Zealand has given them I'm like it's great being here and it's great like you know having the opportunities to live in this country and have those things and have those opportunities but there's also some like deep-seated problems um among the like xenophobia and racism that migrants and especially migrants of color face in this country and descendants of migrants as well so we need to kind of address that and if it's not done in mainstream media then we need to find other platforms it needs to start somewhere right yeah yeah but you guys were on the cover of viva yeah <laughs> and that was so amazing yeah. i was so happy to see your faces on the cover yeah <laughs> because it was unlike anything i'd seen on that platform before oh, really wow <laughs> so i was just really really pleased to see a representation yeah of east asia and south yeah. asia on there and i thought yeah. that was great yeah. do you think this could be the start of more migrant stories and faces in mainstream media um yes and no i think it kind of has its kind of like upswells and downswells with those um with that like exposure um it's yeah it's it's weird because sometimes when we're speaking to you know like journalists and stuff um it depends on who the person is that's interviewing us so for example we had like a little piece that one of our friends um did for zine fest i think it was last year um in spinoff and i think we like we said something like um like the stuff I'm telling you now, like, you know, the mainstream narrative as well, blah, blah, blah. And she called us cool and I was like really excited about that. <laughs> but this was this was completely different to that because spinoff is usually kind of like um I think like a platform that shares more left leaning mm-hmm. um stories. So when they asked us to do Viva, I was like, this is weird, but sure. <laughs> no, I think it's great. Yeah. I think you've tapped into a wider audience as well yeah. now with your work, yeah. and it deserves the attention. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, I don't know, it was a bit surreal because we saw that message, and part of me was just, I just want to do it to experience a photo shoot. Yeah. Um, and then, and it was great because the person that was interviewing us actually, um, Dan, um, was very intent on us having um, sharing our story in our own words mm-hmm. um, and also 
didn't really like erase anything we said about like mainstream media and stuff from um from the article and the way it was written was really like complementary and more about kind of building up and having these kind of like wider range of stories that migrants are going through um as opposed to just this like single narrative yeah yeah I thought it was written really beautifully and what I hope is that because I know media in general it's a money-making machine right what makes money is what they're going to put out there and I'd hope the topics on colorism and race is not just happening now because it's relevant it needs to be ongoing yeah yeah I don't know if it's going to be the latter yeah (laughs) but we'll try and keep it alive as much as we can with what we're doing yeah yeah and I think especially in the like the South Asian diaspora as well there's starting to be more conversations around like colorism, around um, race, around caste, especially as well, which I think is incredibly important. And I kind of want to see those continuing, you know, when having these conversations isn't like making you like popular or like has mm-hmm. like clout, um, but actually is about doing the work within, even in your own family, to mm-hmm. actually address those things. Yeah. Yeah. How would you compare race relations in Malaysia mm-hmm. to that of New Zealand? I guess it's a different kettle of yeah. fish altogether, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very different context, and I think we don't really, in the West especially, I feel like we don't really have an understanding of the way people of color can enact racism against one another. Oh, so yeah. in New Zealand, even in New Zealand, I think there's, I call it hierarchies of race, right? There's like white people at the top and then all of us at the bottom. Mm-hmm. But the people at the bottom aren't really just one lump at the bottom. We also have our own kind of like divisions among ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's things like, um, for example, among Indian people, I know from my own community that um, I've heard like family being quite racist towards like Maori and Pacifica, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of assumed that they're like the bottom of the ladder and stuff. And I'm not saying this to like, you know, throw my family under the bus, but it's also a a very dominant narrative among um, a lot of new migrants that come to this country because assimilation is kind of seen as like you assimilate to the white norm. Whereas we actually have so much more in common in terms of our racism and our experiences and like our lifestyles with Maori and Pacifica people. But, you know, we're we're kind of trying to live up to this, um, this ideal of this is what New Zealand society looks like mm-hmm. that we kind of unconsciously and consciously are you know pushing um these racist things towards other people as well and other people of color too yeah i don't know if that made sense but that's my experience of um of new zealand and of the way that race kind of works in new zealand it's very like white people are the worst but um there's also like a lot of yeah interrelated racism between other you know ethnic so groups much. Yeah. yeah and that's what i feel like gets you know confusing about malaysia because everyone's just like oh it's so nice there and i'm like there's a lot of political problems and like racialized problems systemic racism as well yeah yeah and because it's a lot of like brown people or people of color people don't really recognize that there's actually like hierarchies of race that like 
are present there as mm-hmm. well. And I guess I shouldn't expect that of people that kind of like tell me they love the food here and stuff. But it's a love the food in Malaysia. But it's it's just one of those things where like I feel like if you're visiting a place or you know going to a place or learning about a place, you'd want to know about like their social systems as well. And the race relations in Malaysia, I think are similar to an extent and also different because racism functions in similar ways. There is Mm -hmm. a group that's um, dominant and then there's the groups that are um, not dominant that kind of have to fight for their rights at every stage of the process. Yeah. In Malaysia, it's often minority Indian and Chinese people that are left at the bottom and then the dominant Malay that kind of go through those, um, the kind of same status, I would say, as white people in the sense that they're dominant Mm -hmm. in Malaysia. Yeah, and I had an interesting comment Mm -hmm. uh, given to me by a woman when she saw light skin, dark skin. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, I don't know why Asian people would complain because they have somewhere they belong. They can go back to their countries and call that home. And (laughs) I had to think about a diplomatic way to go back to her. Yeah, But I said well, I wouldn't be so quick to jump to that conclusion yeah. because, to your point, mm-hmm. where we come from often has its own set yeah. of racial issues yeah. and Malaysia does have a complicated yeah. race system for sure because I think of my family and the opportunities that even I could have had had I not been a minority. Yeah, And that's a hard thing to reconcile because I yeah. love Malaysia and I really miss it. Yeah, But... I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing now yeah. if I'd stayed. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of the reason that so many Malaysians have formed the part of the diaspora. And like, I mean, one of the big examples examples is how many Malaysian restaurants there are here, you know? Like, we love our food, we love our people, we love our country, we like ache to go back. Mm-hmm. But there's just so much that can't happen there for us no um and it's getting worse i think it's it kind of fluctuates you kind of think well it's getting better and then no it's not and one of the biggest things i've had to reconcile with my life is the fact that i don't think i could ever live there in my lifetime yeah because i don't think i'll have like i said the same opportunities that would be given to me in new zealand yeah so and freedom of speech as well mm-hmm. it's much more difficult there yeah definitely i felt like things were changing after the last election a bit but i wasn't too hopeful and then a lot of the political stuff that's happened this year i don't know if you've seen it but oh yeah, yeah it's just keeping up with that yeah <laughs> it's just like i just I think a lot of people lose hope for it and that's when they're like we don't belong here we need to move and that's painful and sad to think about yeah yeah so do you think because growing up in Malaysia did you face racism yes um so like I said hierarchies of race yeah everywhere um I don't really have very like big experiences but it would just be like little things like I once when I was in like primary if I'm remembering correctly like one of the girls refused to like sit next to me in class or like hold hands with me when we were doing this like circle oh I've had that yeah Yeah. because she felt like I was dirty and was gonna like pass something on to her with my skin but yeah so it's 
it's been that kind of stuff um but to be honest i almost didn't recognize how racist malaysia was until i was in year eight in school mm-hmm. and we had this teacher i think she was british i've forgotten her name um but we were doing this like social studies type of class and she was like she was talking about racism and we were like what do you mean there's like not much here yes yeah yeah and then she was like um i don't know if you guys have noticed but you know like there is for example if there's a store that's hiring sometimes they'll specify that they want a chinese person Mm -hmm. to be hired and she's like that's racism and i was like oh i just thought that was normal (laughs) you know like it, it just didn't even strike me that much at that age and i like I grew up obviously hearing my parents talk about like the political situation and the racism and stuff. But I think that's like the big formative experience and the formative time that was like, yep, this is something that has, you know, this is some a real thing as opposed to it being like something that I didn't even realize existed there. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know if you've had a similar experience. I so that's amazing that you said that yeah. because I also thought it was normal and I got bullied hard at school because I think also being very Kiwi when I'd gone back people didn't really understand that and they didn't kids they don't like often what they don't understand so I had a lot of bullying from kids I'll never forget this girl she would really bully me she'd call me killing yeah to those of you who don't know what that is that's quite a mean term to use towards Indians and minorities and mukahitam so it was because i don't know she didn't like me for some yeah. reason and i was a talker i'm talkative really happy and yeah because <laughs> it's something that is pushed in schools in new zealand to talk and be yourself whereas in malaysia they were like just shut up yeah and learn <laughs> follow the rules <laughs> yeah follow the rules and yeah. i was like what so that was a real struggle so from a really young age and then people would compare me to my mum because mum's really fair and it's amazing how you just normalize this behavior. People will just come up and be like, wow, she's so black. She looks like your, your husband to my mum. Yeah. And so it was just stuff that I kind of grew up with and much later only realized, and I say much later, like probably mid-20s when I was like, wait a minute, yeah. I can't tolerate comments like that. Mm-hmm. So... I guess it was kind of like an awakening when you think, oh my God, that was actually all casual racism. Yeah, yeah. And you don't realize definitely. it until later. Yeah. Yeah, the systemic stuff, like, I think one of our teachers taught us about it in school when we were in, like, I think it might have been year eight as well. We were doing history lessons and we didn't cover much of um, Malaysian history. But she basically, like, told us all the stuff about, like, the political situation and, like, what had happened. I don't know why I don't remember so much of it, but I know I know I remember thinking it was important to know this mm-hmm. and important to pay attention, like, important to pay attention and important thing that was happening because she was like, don't let this go outside of class that I'd, like, you know, be telling you the stuff, but you guys need to know this kind of thing. That's amazing you had a teacher like that. Yeah. So yeah. you were not in public school? No, not in public school. I was in a private school, um, international school. So for a lot of the lesson plans were quite different. So our teacher was like, Malaysian history is boring, so we're not going to cover it (laughs) too much. Um, So we learned about like stuff like 
you know, the formation of Malacca and, like, um, the story of, like, Parmaswara and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know why out of... I don't know if it was a plan or I don't know if she just randomly, you know, had this thought to tell us. Mm -hmm. But she just told us this stuff and... I don't fully remember everything she said. Like, I rem- I have, like, snatches of memory from um, mm-hmm. her telling us, like, the classroom and, like, the way she was kind of delivering it. But I wouldn't even say that that really stuck in my mind until, like, I started um, my degree um, at uni and figured out that so much of it was very much based on, like, racism and, like, power structures with white people are like white supremacy at the top and I was like but how does it work elsewhere like why don't we talk about racism in other countries and other settings and like why why don't we talk about it more openly and more you know like more context specific because obviously the uni is based here in New Zealand so there's reasons why but I just think it's important to kind of open up the conversation beyond just the west um and talk about it that's so interesting well i went to public school in malaysia yeah. Yeah. and in a really small town grew up on the east coast in Kuantan. yeah and, and um the history i remember the, the term that we would use was they've taken the hindu out of it yeah. because they malayarized everything right yeah. so all the Indian and all of that culture was taken out of it yeah. and erased like Hangtua and stuff and I think yeah. Paramaswara was also yeah. Um, yeah so that was really interesting that was something that I found while I was actually <laughs> doing my research because um, I have a history chapter in my thesis in my MA um, and it had to be really like succinct and to the point but it ended up being a huge piece of work, just the history chapter, because I was really interested in learning more about it, mm-hmm. about our history. And so I'd read all of this stuff, but there were so many different accounts of Malacca being founded, because it's a very important, like, Malay kingdom. Yes. But there's, like, I think three or f- three different accounts, and the only one that I remembered was the one from school about Parmeswara. And mm-hmm. I was like, and I think I also remember our teacher saying that, like, you know, they're changing the history books and stuff. And I was like, mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, like, saw that when, when I saw those, like, different accounts. I was like, oh, yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I heard they actually changed it back. I don't know. That might yeah. have been, I might be wrong on that. But yeah. when I was growing up, no, it was yeah. quite different to what I was being told outside yeah. of school. Yeah. So... You studied criminology all the way through uni? Yeah, so in undergrad, I did psychology and criminology. Um, so I did a conjoint. I got a BA and a BSc. And then I did my honors in criminology and my master's in criminology. So criminology is obviously something of interest to you. Yeah, yeah. And was that because of the social interests you've had in race and things like yeah. that? Yeah, so even my mom was quite shocked, actually, because she was like, the last time I went back she was like but why criminology you never told us you enjoyed this yeah but as a kid especially because like international school again content was very different I loved history and geography like it was one of my favorite subjects I did really really well in it but my parents were like that's not important (laughs) but yeah it was one of the (laughs) one of the topics that I really really enjoyed um and you know, it's very, like, humanity, social sciences kind of based. And then mm-hmm. as I got older, um, I think after about year eight or year nine, Tumblr became quite a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I was on Tumblr quite a lot and then I started full like following or just like reading up more about like feminism and racism and stuff like that from the posts that were coming up um I was really interested in it and criminology as a topic was like the reason that I chose it was partially because I was like I really like this show Criminal Minds and I would like to be like this FBI and then I like went to uni um did my psych degree and I was like telling my parents that I want to do criminology as well and it will work well together you know just trying to kind of like get them on board um I took a sociology class finished my prerequisites for it and really enjoyed like sociology and like all of the reading material like I read every single week every single reading I was that nerd that was in the room yeah and then yeah and then I ended up like getting into crim again really loved it um loved learning about like you know prisons and like racism and like colonialism and all of that kind of stuff if I were to go back I would probably do sociology um mostly because crim is quite focused on like just crim um whereas I think my like interest would have been you know expanded greatly by sociology current kind of focus has been on colonialism and state violence and that kind of stuff and thinking of continuing it I don't really know I'm a bit kind of confused at this point in my life but yeah so that's the whole kind of story as to why I did crim (laughs) I remembered as well I don't know if you saw it recently I think her name is like Bavitra Sudu I put stuff up on my stories yesterday about yeah, that. Yeah, because you posted about it. Yeah, of course. Because I was like, I was looking at that and I was like, oh my god, this is wild. Pavitra Sugu. Yeah. She was doing YouTube videos. Left school because her family were really poor and she had to work. Mm-hmm. And she started cooking videos on YouTube. And then the Prime Minister caught, um, I don't know, of what she was doing. Yeah. And he made a speech or something. He talked about her and her following just exploded. Oh, wow. And Bernard Chandran has used her, I believe, in a new campaign. So a few behind-the-scenes shots have leaked on social. Man, it has been interesting seeing how that's been dissected by the Asian media. I think she's absolutely gorgeous. And I love seeing a woman who I can relate to in the media now. Mm. That's so nice. But, yes, there was a photo that that came up on my newsfeed. And they've shut off the comments, so you can't say anything. They've done that on purpose. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Photoshopped her, sharpened her features, made her fairer. Yeah. And then when you swipe, it's the original photo. And they said in the captions, I find their captions really interesting. It translated to, I think it said that she's really exotic and we wish her luck or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I read the caption as well. I didn't even know, in, in, why are we calling our own people exotic now? Why is this even a <laughs> thing? Related. I know. I was like, when did that start? That yeah. really, really annoyed me so yeah. much. I had so many Malaysians respond to that, by the way. Yeah. A lot of them. Yeah. And all, you know, saying how, you know, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of comments on Fair and Lovely as well, skin lining creams and how they yeah, were made to use it. Yeah, there's a whole um, petition now to ban it. Yeah, there yeah. is. Yeah. Which I signed. <laughs> Have you signed it? No, not yet. I just, I kind of just see it on social media and then like forget about it. But I need to go back and like do all of these like petition things. Yeah, there's yeah. so much out there at the moment. Yeah. But yeah, Pavitra, I, I really hope she, her modeling career takes off and she yeah. does well. And yeah, it's she just looks beautiful. Nice. She's so gorgeous. That and I big like uh, bindi. Yeah, that she was wearing. 
I'm so glad Brita Chandran has yeah. picked her up and put her in the spotlight because she really well deserves it. Yeah. We need more women that look like that. Yeah, There needs to be more diversity. What is next for the Migrant Zine Collective? Um, at the moment, we're updating our website. We've got a few workshops coming up. Um, that we'll keep everyone updated on on our Instagram and Facebook. Um, what else? We have a couple of zines coming out as well. So we have Recipes for Resistance, mm-hmm. um, which is a going to be an e-zine um, released online, uh, which is talking about the um, migrant experiences, I guess, with food and with family during the lockdown. Um, so we've had some people like send in recipes, but we also got some um, funding for the zine. Um, and with that funding, we actually um, put a public call out for writers to write longer think pieces or longer pieces to go in the zine. It's going to be a fat zine because <laughs> there's a lot of them. <laughs> that's um, great. Yeah, but yeah, so that's, I think, one of our main projects that we're very, very excited about um, that's coming out soon. Um, and I think one or two other zines. The other one's called Subtitles, which is about um, migrants or like, you know, people of color's um, experiences with like watching TV shows or movies and the subtitles and stuff. So things like I watch a lot of Korean dramas. So to me, like, you know, subtitles are like a lifeline and they're like fun. And I talk about it with my friends and I've like consumed this like wide range of media because of access to subtitles, for example. Um, Yeah. And Bollywood movies and all that stuff because I don't fully sometimes understand what they're saying. So it kind of gives you that connection, right? And I've actually um, got some Malay shows and stuff on my list to watch as oh, well. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, maybe I can practice my Malay, which is very, very rudimentary. But yeah. I've been really wanting to get back into watching Malay shows. I used to yes. be so good at, because going to public school, like I could fully yeah. write essays in Malay and stuff. And yeah. Just remembering the language. I don't want yeah. to lose that. It's awesome. But you know, that's the other thing. Like, this is totally, again, an aside. But in Malaysia, it's so normal even to go to the cinema and just see like, you know, two full like lines of subtitles, one in like Chinese, one in like Malay or like, you know, whatever language. And then here it's like there's no subtitles ever at the cinemas. And I think when I first came here, it was kind of jarring because I was like, this is weird. Something's missing. Where is that giant block at the bottom of the screen with three languages? Because it just becomes part of your life when you go in and you see all of those different languages and you're like, cool, subtitles. And even on all the other channels, like on TV, I'm pretty sure there was at least like one line at the bottom of subtitles, at least in Malay, Yeah. if not in any other language. I found it so funny how here you have to actually turn on a button that says subtitles, whereas in Malaysia, it's a button to switch it off. I think with the Migrant Zine Collective, you and Helen are doing some really important work. Yeah. And you deserve all the accolades and all the Viva covers and all the (laughs) magazine covers. So, yeah. Thank you. This has been amazing. So, thank you for being on Her Skin. No, thank you for interviewing me. And I'm glad to be the first one. (laughs) I know you are the first one. I hope all the audio is okay and this doesn't put. I don't know who's going to be listening to this, but we'll find out. Um, Before you go, what would you like to promote? Um, probably just check out our Instagram, our Migrant Zine Collective Instagram and our website. Uh, we also have a really cool anti-racism uh, resource. 
I didn't do any work on it. It was Helen and a few other people that um, we're friends with. And it's an amazing collection of um, very accessible reads about Black Lives Matter, race relations, um, race relations in uh, New Zealand, um, coronavirus racism, um, racism against Māori, other kind of campaigns that are still going on in New Zealand, um, like the Arms Down one that has recently ended, Protect Ihu Mātau, and Hands Off Our Tamariki as well. So it's a really cool resource. Check it out and wait for our recipes for resistance. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Jasmine. Thank you.